How many of us had questions about Jesus before we came to him? How many of us have had serious questions about Jesus after we've come to him? For some of us, questions are a daily experience in our faith life. It often feels like a roller coaster as we jump between questions and answers, doubts and confidence, fear and wonder. Amen? We don't want that to be an amen, do we? But it often is. Others of us have long since settled our questions. Not that we do not have them, or that somehow we've come to a place where we know everything, but we have learned to not let our questions unsettle our faith, our life, or our confidence in Jesus. What if we could, all of us, live and experience our faith like this most of the time? If not, all of the time. As we come into our passage today, the book of Mark chapter 2, what we've been seeing is that people have begun to see Jesus. They've begun to hear his teaching. They've experienced the power of his healing and his power to cast out demons from amongst those afflicted by them. Jesus has claimed and carried through on the authority and power to call men and women to follow him. His authority to call people to full, 100% devotion to him and to his kingdom. What we see today is a continuation of that as he makes clear what is perhaps the hardest part of himself for those at the time to grasp, and I'll be honest, for many of us even here today to grasp, and that is that Jesus Christ really was and is God. So let's look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says this. Again, this is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Church, we all have questions. We all have wonders. There are things in the Christian faith, whether you've been a Christian for a long time, or whether you're sitting here today and you're exploring whether or not you even want to become a Christian, or who this Jesus even is, there are questions that we have. Those in this crowd had questions, and we're going to look at that in just a little bit. But before we do, one of the things that I want to highlight for us is simply this. While we all have questions, we all also have need for the other thing in this passage, and that is the forgiveness of sins. 
Every single one of us in this room, myself included, came in today in a condition in need of Jesus. Every one of us came in in a condition today, whether we've been Christians for years or for seven seconds. Praise the Lord if that happened seven seconds ago. Where we need Jesus because we are sinners. We're going to have to come to grips with that at some point or another. As we approach our passage today, we see two groups. Two groups that speak clearly who he is. Jesus uses both of them in his teaching and to proclaim his identity. And I guarantee in this room, every one of us finds ourselves in one of these two groups. The first group is the group that is full of faith. I'm going to say it again, the group that is full of faith. Now, really quickly, let me highlight something. That does not mean you have all the answers. It does not mean that you have it all figured out, and it does not mean that you won't go home tonight and wake up tomorrow with questions you don't understand. The group that is full of faith acts on that faith, has a confidence in that faith, even when it doesn't necessarily make sense, and even when we're not quite sure. The second group is a group that is full of questions and very few answers. They are a group that would look at Jesus in wonder constantly, but never actually go far enough to have a confidence in who he is or what we can be in him. Every one of us in this room is somewhere in those two groups. If you thought of about them as a spectrum, some of us might find ourselves running right down the middle. But most of us would be on one side or the other. Where are you today? Where are you on the average day? Somewhere between faith and questions. I want to start with those who are in faith. We look at Mark chapter 2, 1 through 5, the first half of our passage today, and we see those who are living in a bold faith that is full of action. Verse 2, it tells us, when many were, And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he, that was Jesus, was preaching the word to them. The first thing I'd note for all of us here is that a change has happened in his ministry. The people who are gathered in this home to hear him are not gathered for the sake of miracles. They're not gathered for the sake of exorcisms and healings. They are gathered, why? To hear the word of God preached by Jesus. They are there to hear his teaching. But there's something we know about this crowd, and that is, is that even though they're here for the right reasons to hear him teach, the word has not yet begun to penetrate their hearts. And we know that. Because when you look at our passage next, we see in verse 3, it says, They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Verse 4, When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And we'll come back to that part in a minute. But essentially speaking, what happens is a group of four men are carrying a paralytic and they approach the door and you can guarantee they're saying, hey, excuse me, can you let us through? And not a single person does. The crowd listening to Jesus is the barrier to Jesus for this desperate man and his friends. The word of God hasn't begun to penetrate their hearts yet. They want to hear Jesus. They want to know what he says. They want to take it in for them. See, it's about them. It's about what they can hear and what they need. But Jesus' teaching should never stop here. It should land where? Here. In our hands and our feet, right? And so this is a group of people for whom the word of God is important, but they're not actually letting it penetrate their hearts yet. Now we know a few, at least a few of those who were in this crowd were the Jewish scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. 
I think we can be pretty well assured, especially after reading Matthew and Luke's description of these events, that it would have been some of these folks specifically who were there to hear Jesus, but not for the right reasons. They're there, but not in good faith. They're there with malicious hearts. You can imagine they're saying, well, I can't move out of the way. I have to hear what he says so that I can critique it. And they look to everybody else to get out of the way so this desperate man and his friends can come to Jesus. Church, I'd invite you to think about the ways that we sometimes create barriers for the desperate who need Jesus. See, there are times when we, even the church, who have let the word of God penetrate our hearts, create a barrier. We stand there in the way, whether that's through our attitudes or through our politics, through any number of of requirements that we set to people that they must in some way fix themselves before they become a part of the church. We create barriers just like this crowd did. Verse 3, it says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Four of them carry the man, but there are others referred to in our passage as they. We don't know who they are. We don't know how many of them they are. But four men showed up with a paralytic. And there are others there who hear the need, who feel the need, who understand the need. Or maybe they came with the four who carried and they went first and we don't know who they are. Maybe they're other friends, family, the paralytic. Maybe it's a few people from the back of the room, right? Those outside, waiting outside, and they, they're the ones that encounter first, and they can't push their way through, but they have faith, and so they choose something else. I like to think that among this crowd would be Peter. This is his house, after all. And perhaps Peter's on the outside of the circle and the crowd comes in and and Peter, who knows, he's kind of crazy sometimes. And he says, well, we can't get him in here, but we can cut a hole in the roof. Now it's all speculation. (laughs) But what's not speculation in our passage is their commitment, this group's commitment to getting the paralytic to Jesus for healing. Verse 4. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Church, undeterred by the crowd who won't let them through, they go to the roof and begin digging. Now, we make a big deal about this in the modern context. This would not be like digging through our roof right here where you're going through a metal roof or shingles and then you've got plywood and then you've got insulation and then you've got drywall and then you've got, right? This is a, a, a dirt, mud, thatched roof. You dig a hole in it, it makes a huge mess to replace it. You make another mud pie and you put it in place. Okay, so this is not that sort of crazy like, wow, now it makes a mess. And it's a big deal, but it only takes half a day to fix, not a week. But they are undeterred by the crowd. And where we see a wall, they see an opening. And Jesus sees all of this, and he begins to use it in his teaching. Verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. It says when he saw their faith, their being all those whose commitment to this paralytic and to getting him to Jesus for healing. There includes the man paralyzed as he was, unable to come to Jesus on his own, but desperate to come before Jesus and be healed. He saw their faith. Last week we looked at the faith of the leper. Last week, the faith of the leper showed us that he believed Jesus could heal him, but was not convinced that Jesus would heal him. In our passage today, we see that their faith not only leads them to believe that Jesus can, but that he will, because nobody digs through somebody's roof if they don't think Jesus is actually going to do something. 
And so what we see and what Jesus sees here is what we can call faith in action. James 2.26 tells us this, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What we know is that we are not saved by our works. There is nothing we can do to earn our way into heaven. But we should know this, Christian, if we are saved, if we have the faith that saves, it leads us to work. Faith is not faith if it doesn't result in action. James says it's dead. As unable as the paralytic would be able to be. Their faith leads to Jesus forgiving this man of his sins. Verse 5, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, in case you missed the language here, this is the language of salvation. If his sins are forgiven, then his place in Christ is assured. Jesus saw their faith and saves the paralytic the text is clear. It is because of their faith that his sins are forgiven. So their faith has to include the paralytic. Why? Because we are not saved by other people's faith. We cannot be saved by our grandparents or our parents or our friends Faith. You are not saved by my faith as a pastor. Your grandkids, your kids are not saved by your faith. We are saved by our own faith. Romans 10, 9 through 11 says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I don't know whether or not this paralytic was able to verbally confess any kind of a saving faith with his own mouth, but he certainly was in this moment with his own heart because if Jesus has forgiven his sins, then he's saved, right? So let me ask you this. In what sense are his sins forgiven? In what sense is he saved by their faith? Because that's what the text says. Jesus doesn't say to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven because of your faith. He says, your sins are forgiven because of their faith. He's a paralytic. The implication is clear. Paralytics can't move. They can't operate on their own. They can't do what they need to do. In fact, a paralytic is perhaps the best physical representation of what we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. When the text tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we are unable, because dead people are unable to do anything. It was the they of the passage, though, that had heard of Jesus. It was the they of the passage that must have shared the testimonies of people healed with this paralytic. It was the they of the passage either convinced the paralytic to consent to be carried to Jesus or who simply took it upon themselves without his consent to carry the paralytic to Jesus. Their faith had led to the paralytic's faith, which is how he got saved. Here's the truth of faith. Here's the truth of faith, great and awesome as it is. With very few exceptions, God works through the spreading of faith from one person to another person to another person. Very few exceptions. The Apostle Paul struck blind in the road and called to personally follow Jesus by the voice of Jesus out of heaven. This is an exception to the rule. Amen? None of us, I'm pretty sure, came to Jesus through becoming blind on the road and led to himself through an audible voice. If you speak to missionaries in Muslim-dominated countries, one of the things you'll hear right now is that in vast droves, Muslims are coming to Jesus. And they're not doing so through missionaries. They're doing so through dreams. 
They go to sleep at night, and Jesus comes to them in their sleep and says, follow me. And then they go seeking out the missionaries to be baptized and trained up as believers. But this is the exception. This is not the normal way God does this. The normal way is for one person in faith to go to another person out of faith and lead them in faith to Jesus. His friends, this paralytic's friends, were willing to move heaven and earth to get their friend to Jesus. And let me tell you, church, this kind of faith is contagious. They don't know everything, but they know enough to put their faith into action and to trust Jesus with their friend. This is a contagious faith. And church, this is the kind of faith our world needs right now. The world needs this kind of faith. You look at the world, it's a dark place. There are people who don't know Jesus. They're living in darkness. They're like the paralyzed man, unable. They need friends like you and like me who are willing to carry them to Jesus no matter what it looks like, no matter what it means, no matter what it costs. So church, we look at the people of faith in our passage and I pray that we would see ourselves. I pray that we would see the ambition we should have for who we should be as we think about all those people in our world who are just as desperate to meet Jesus as this paralytic man was. Our friends, our neighbors, our family members are in the same place. They need Jesus. Verse 5, they brought him, they put their friend in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, when I read that, I kind of wonder, was there a moment there where his friends, where the paralytic himself was like, really? That's it? Right? They carried him there to get healed. Right? They carried him there so that he could walk away. You got to wonder in that moment if the paralytic and his friends are a bit let down. Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He says, they had brought him for visible help, not invisible encouragement. Jesus knew full well what this paralytic wanted. Jesus knew full well what his faithful friends wanted. They wanted healing. And instead, what does he do? He forgives him. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, church, you can think about this, and we know we would be disappointed. We know we would be disappointed, right? I, I don't need to convince you of that, but, but hear this. We also know, if you're in Christ, that what he gave him was far better. Right? That what he gave him was far better than what he wanted. Upon hearing these words from Jesus, every single person in this room should have been shouting out, Jesus, me too. Right? Every one of them should have been crying out, not him, not just him, but me. Also, my sins need to be forgiven. And we know that's not what the room said. We know that's not what the room said because the text tells us that's not what the room says. We look at verses 6 through 11 and the whole story changes here. The whole attitude gets different. We get to the questions. Verse 6 and 7, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now to be accused of blasphemy would be the accusation of proclaiming that one is God. That's what blasphemy is. 
to proclaim that one is God. Make no mistake here. The scribes in the room knew what he was doing. They knew what he was saying. Let me also say this. Mark, in his gospel here, in these verses, is a lot more generous than Matthew and Luke are when they tell of these same events. When you read those stories in Matthew and Luke, what we see and what we know is that these are malicious questions. Mark doesn't do that, though. Mark keeps their motives hidden from us. And there's a really good reason that he keeps their motives hidden from us, and that is because of one simple truth. Questions are not the enemy of Christ. Questions are not the enemy of Christ. Now those who ask questions might be. But Jesus doesn't hide from the truth because he is the truth. And so the motives of these questioners are not good, but honestly, their questions are actually really good questions. And Jesus uses their good questions to teach well the crowd what he wants them to know, right? Jesus is in control of this whole thing. The questions are understandable. Honestly, every single Jewish person in the room should have been asking those questions. The moment Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, it shouldn't have taken the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers to say, hey, wait a minute, that sounds weird. Because only God can forgive. How can Jesus say that to someone? See, when Jesus says this, it is not like if I were to say it to you. Right, if I go to Jeff and he and I are having a conversation about something in his life and he confesses sin and I say, Jeff, man, you know your sins are forgiven, right? That's different than if I said, Jeff, I forgive your sins. <laughs> right, we, we're called to remind one another of the gospel, of the forgiveness of sins. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Otherwise, the scribes in the room wouldn't have been like, hey, wait a minute, uh... I take issue with what you just said. See, every bit of their understanding, every bit of their practice of worship, every single bit of who they were and what they believed had a problem with what Jesus was saying. And some of us do too. Some of us do too. We're going, you know what? I, I believe in Jesus. I believe he was an awesome guy, but, but I don't know. He really was God. I don't know if he ever actually said he was God. Church, I want to encourage you to ask good questions. I want Calvary Church to be a place where we can come together and ask good questions. Where we're not afraid to say, hey, you know what, I don't understand this. Can you help me see this? Or I don't get this at all. Or what do you mean by that? I want to be a place where it is safe for us to come together and figure out what the Bible says. Because it's not always easy. Here's some good questions. These are questions that are asked in sincerity, right? When we actually want to know the answer. Another good question is when we're seeking the truth. We don't know what the truth is, but we want to know. Another good question is when we ask to understand better. See, I think Mark leaves the ambiguity in this for us so that we know that their questions were the right questions to ask because they're the very questions Jesus wants to answer in this teaching. Church, he could have just said to that paralyzed man, get up and walk. And he could have tagged on to that hey, later, hey, guy, come back and see me. I'll tell you about your spiritual condition. But in front of the whole crowd, he knows exactly who's in the crowd. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And he has every intention of healing him down the road, right, further on in the conversation. Church, we all have questions. Every one of us does. If you ever don't, let's trade places. Because I do. Tell you, the joy of my life, the season that I'm in as a pastor and as a believer right now, is reading through the Word and discovering stuff I've never seen before. And say, whoa, wait a minute, what about that? How does that work with what was said over there? I believe there's an answer to every one of those questions. I don't know if I'll know all those answers. We all have questions. 
And I believe that how Jesus answers these questions might help us find answers to our questions. I also know that the people on the outside of these walls have questions. And the ways that Jesus answers these questions might help us be ready, as Peter calls us to be ready to do, to always be ready to share the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. And so how does Jesus answer these questions? We're going to look at five things. How does he answer these questions? Number one, he goes to the source. Number one, he goes to the source. Look at this. Verse 8, Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Here's what I love about Mark's telling of this story and through this narration from Jesus, is these questions are likely questions that have been assigned to them by higher-ups to go investigate and figure out so they can attack Jesus. But Jesus knows that that's not where the questions really come from. He knows that the scribes are sitting in that room and they're questioning in their own hearts. Right? Sometimes we get the questions that we have because we read a book and it raises up a question. Some atheist poses a thing and then we don't know what to do with it and it starts creating doubts in us. That's questions from another source. But we all have questions in our own hearts. The people outside these walls have questions in their own hearts about who Jesus is. These are questions that root to things like fear and worry, anxiety, that root to sin and guilt and shame. There's a source for every question somebody asks. And if we, as we're talking to them, can get to the heart of that question, the source of that, we're going to be far better at answering their question. And Jesus knows this. He even points out to them, why is this coming out of your hearts? Because they're struggling with this. Number two, he answers their questions with reason. He answers their question with reason. Now, somewhere along the way over the, like the last 50 years, somebody has gotten the idea that to be a solid Christian means to throw our brains away. I would like to tell you that that is an utter lie from the devil. The reason that we have in this world was given to us by the reasoning God of the universe. He is all logic. He is all truth. If we're not exercising our brains as believers, we're sinning. Straight up. If we're not challenging how we think and memorizing and learning, and we're just in the wrong place. He uses logic. This is what Jesus does. He uses logic in his argument. Verse 9. He says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And of course the answer is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because there's no proof needed when he says your sins are forgiven. But if he says to somebody, get up and walk, and they don't, he's just proved himself false. That's what he means when he says that. It's far easier for me to say to someone, hey, your sins are forgiven, than to say, hey, get up and walk. Because there's no proof for the first one. At least not an immediate clear proof. Right? All right, sins are forgiven. Great. Praise the Lord. We'll find that out when we die, whether or not it's true. But church, he reasons. Now, I would point this out as well. Easier is an interesting word because I know in Jesus' mind as he's saying this, as he knows that the forgiveness of sins is actually far harder than the get up and walk. Why? Because the forgiveness of sins relies on his own death. And as he says the words, your sins are forgiven to this man, in the back of his mind somewhere, he's thinking about two, three years down the road when he's going to be hanging on the cross. The actual forgiveness of sins is harder than the miracle of get up and walk. But Jesus knows the scribes and Pharisees, they don't know this. <laughs> they don't know that he's working on that whole different level, that whole different plane. It is, in fact, easier, logic-wise, to say get up, or your sins are forgiven than get up 
and walk. And church, I need to say this to us. This is still true for us today. It is easy to say my sins are forgiven. I can stand up here and I can say, hey, I know the Lord has forgiven my sin. And you can say what? You can say, how do you know? I just do. Church, hear this. The way that we know that our sins are forgiven is not just because the Bible tells us so. It is because we see the Holy Spirit working in us in such a way that we are being transformed daily from who we were to somebody new. It is not enough for any one of us to say my sins are forgiven and offer no proof through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit moving forward. It isn't. I can offer any one of you, when I get to know you, I look at your life and I see how much you've grown and I see what the Lord is doing in you and how you've changed. I can offer every one of you an assurance of salvation through Scripture that says, that means your sins have been forgiven. That means you're saved. Here's what I can't do. I can't look at someone who confessed Christ and is still the same person 5, 10, 20 years later. I can't offer that, 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 that same solution. I can't offer that same confession, assurance that you are saved. Because it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say get up and walk. In church, if you're a Christian, Jesus also told you not just your sins are forgiven. He told you to get up and walk. Because at one point or another, you were this paralytic, right? At one point or another, you were this guy unable to carry himself to Jesus. And you had friends or family or whoever it is that brought you in and carried you in and cut a hole through some floor or some ceiling so that you could be in front of Jesus. And you came to him. And you confessed him as Lord and Savior. And now, whenever that was to now, you've grown, you have changed. Praise the Lord. That is how we know we're saved. The Bible tells us that we can know that we're saved. He also answers their questions with himself. This is number three. He answers their questions with himself. Verse 10. It says, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Church, he answers with himself. Who is himself? It is the Son of Man. That is a title. It is not a phrasing of humility, as some might say it is. This is a title. It's a title that Jesus uses 70 times for himself. And there's two other times other people use it for him. It's the title he uses most for himself in all of the New Testament. And it comes straight out of the book of Daniel. Chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. It says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Every time Jesus says, I'm the son of man, he's referring to this passage, to the kingdom that will not pass away, to a people, nation, and languages that will serve him. This is a title for the king of kings. Jesus answers their question with himself. He says, you ask this question, who am I to have such authority as to forgive sins? He says, well, I am the son of man of Daniel, the king. God's chosen. Now, church, let me be really clear. We probably should not answer other people's questions with ourselves. That's what Jesus gets to do. What should we do? We should answer their questions with Scripture. We should answer their questions with the Word of God. What did Jesus say about himself? What did Jesus write about himself? What did he give us about who he is? Church, the Word of God never returns empty and void. 
It always accomplishes the purposes to which it is given. Do we know the Word of God well enough to answer people's questions with the Word of God? Do you know the Word of God well enough to answer people's questions with the Word of God? All right. Number four, he answers their questions with action. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Right? He answers their question with action because faith always results in action. Friends, the best answer sometimes to the questions that people ask is the Word of God lived out by the people of God. It is in action. It is being His hands and His feet. It is being His mouth in the world. It is being His body as we go together and serve and love our community in every way that we can possibly think about. Do you know how many people's questions just melt away when they actually see the church being the church and not something else, not a social club or some other thing? So number four, he answers with actions. Number five, he answers with truth. And here's what I mean by that. When you take all of this together, we look at this whole passage together. Here's what we see. Jesus does in this passage what only God can do. First, forgiveness. Then knowing the questions on their minds before they even speak them. He does what only God can do and heals the paralytic. And church, what you often hear skeptics say is that Jesus never said he was God. Well, I already said it once. I'll say it again. In this passage, he clearly says, I am God. If he's not God, then he is a blasphemer and he is not worth following. And he would know that. And he would know that. They say only God can forgive sins and he says yes. And it was easy. Church here, this is the most important question and answer in this world is the question and the answer that comes with it. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And everything Jesus says and everything he does in this passage is proclaim the truth that he is God. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're trying to figure all this out. You're trying to figure out who Jesus is. Let me ask you a question. What answers do you need in order to move from this group, this group of questioning, to the group of faith that doesn't have it all figured out, but has enough figured out to bring yourself and everybody you love to Jesus? What do you need to know? What do you need to ask? What do you need to find out to bring you from that place to the next? Because something tragic happens in our passage here at this point. Verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. That's not the tragic part. It then says this, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Church, how could it possibly be tragic that they would be amazed and all glorify God? Because we know that not everybody who was amazed and glorified God in this moment would follow Jesus. They were all amazed. That means that those in the crowd who were just there to hear and listen, trying to take it all in, that means the, the paralytic man who's wandering off at this point, probably praising the Lord, his faithful friends who carried him in, the other faithful ones who were there. But it also means the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And we know most of them would never come to him. They would be the very ones that would plot his death and kill him. Now, some of them at that point actually did come to him, but we know not all, and in fact, most didn't. They experienced this moment the same way everybody else did. And as a result, they're amazed. 
Why wouldn't they be? They just saw a guy paralyzed, get up and walk out. I would be amazed even if I didn't like the source. But it says they even go and they go one step further and they glorify God. Why? Because they know that it's only by God's power that somebody could stand up and walk who's been paralyzed. And so they're amazed and they glorify God. Then they leave and they plot his death. And they leave and they figure out more ways to attack him, more ways to not follow him. And we often think, and I have the same thought so often, how can anybody experience what we experience of God? Know what we know of God and still walk away. Well, friends, here's the reality. These guys saw a literal, literal miracle in front of them, and they refused to see the truth. Why? Probably a few reasons. Number one, they came into this moment so full of preconceived notions, they had no room for something new. Right? They came to this moment with so much background, so much ideas of who God was and how he would work and how he wouldn't work that they couldn't see Jesus for who he was. Church, we live in a world that is so full of preconceived notions that are anti-Jesus that most of the people around us can't make room in their heads and their hearts for Jesus alongside the things that they're taught and shown and assume by the world around us. Number two, they can't come because, honestly, if he is who he says he is, it's going to change everything. Some of you have experienced this. It's hard getting old, and it's hard seeing things change. And sometimes you get to a point where you just can't accept new change because of what it means you'll need to do and what you'll need to adjust to. And you've done that plenty in your life, thank you. And it's hard. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is God, if he has the authority to forgive sins and to tell people to get up and walk who have been paralyzed, then he also has the, 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 the authority in your life to tell you to stop drinking and smoking and whatever else that you do. He has authority to say, hey, that job that you love, I don't want you to do that anymore. I want you to do this instead. He has the authority to say, hey, this home that you love, I want you somewhere else. Here's the reality. If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, then he has the authority to come to you who have confessed him as Lord and Savior and say, not anymore. That thing is done. It's gone. You say, well, but it's a good thing. You say, yeah, but I still want it gone. Right? If he is who he says he is, it changes everything. Some of us love our anger, our hatred, our grief, our guilt, our shame, our addictions, our whatever else so much that we won't let Jesus come in because we don't want those things to be gone. We don't know who we would be without them. Let me tell you who you'd be without them. You'd be a paralytic walking out the door. You'd be a paralytic walking out the door. third thing that we see and I think that that happens when people reject is they don't see the need they think they're fine they think they've come far enough they they think that what they have is is good enough church in comparison to the king of kings in comparison to the one who can speak forgiveness and cause paralytics to stand up do you really have enough if you don't have him no you don't Church, every one of us in this room falls into two camps right now. Every one of us falls into, this, into two camps. We either encounter Jesus and we are amazed into faith, or we counter, encounter Jesus and we are amazed into doubt. Either we are amazed into faith or we are amazed into doubt because it's too good to be true, it's too strange to be true, or it's too hard to be true. Are you amazed into faith or are you amazed into doubt? Where are you sitting right now in this moment? I fear that some of us have found ourselves amazed, even glorifying God, but have never let that amazement or glory carry us into a relationship with Jesus. We've experienced the power and the glory of God, but we have not actually followed that power and glory into a relationship with Jesus. 
We're like those in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, that Jesus says, I never knew you. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Church, there are people who experience enough of Jesus to perform miracles for Jesus. Prophecy, casting out demons, wonders, signs, amazing ministry. But they don't know him. Because they don't know him, he doesn't know them. And apart from him, they are just still sinners in need of Jesus and they're not paralytics that have been healed and sent off, both healed and forgiven. Church, I don't know where you sit today in your seat right now, but I know we've got people who have experienced just enough of Jesus to be dangerous to their eternity. You've experienced the goodness of God. You've experienced the glory of God, the wonder of God. But you've never let that carry you into a relationship with Jesus, into a relationship where, hear this, what does Jesus say to the paralytic when he forgives his sins? He says, son. Did you catch that? Mark refers to him as a man every single time he refers to him. Jesus refers to him as son. Why? Because he is part of the family of God. Because his sins have been forgiven and he has been healed. Amen? Church, I don't know where you are today, but I pray that right now, if you are someone who has only gone far enough to see, but not far enough to believe and to be in that relationship of faith, that today would be the day. I'd invite you to come speak with me during communion or after church or the last song or whenever, or somebody else here who loves Jesus doesn't need to be me. If you're sitting here going today, you know what, I've gone this far, but I need to go the rest of the way. Come talk to me. Or find somebody else here you know loves Jesus and talk to them. We're praying for you. We're lifting you up. We want to see you come to the Lord Jesus. Amen.